0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello and welcome to SEAC Stories. This podcast is brought to you by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. SEAC is a university-wide multidisciplinary initiative that facilitates collaborations and builds on the expertise of our researchers to address the region's challenges. This podcast tells the stories of our members exploring and sharing their research in and across the region. Welcome to the SEAC Stories podcast. My name is Natalie Pearson, and I'm your host today. I'm talking to Dr. Roger Lee Huang, a lecturer in political violence with the Department of Security Studies and Criminology at Macquarie University. Roger has broad research interests in the politics, international relations, and security of East and Southeast Asian states. He has previously researched and worked in political and policy circles in Myanmar, Taiwan, and Hong Kong. And it is Myanmar that we're going to be talking about today, Roger. Perhaps you could start with telling us whether we should be saying Myanmar or Burma.
0: Now, I do believe in freedom of speech, so I'm happy for whatever people use. I personally use Myanmar. Um, You can see from all my publication records that I use Myanmar in my peer-reviewed journal articles, my book, Um, Having said that, if you dig a little bit deeper, uh, about over a decade ago, I wrote a letter to the Taipei Times when the editor then unilaterally decided to change my wording of Burma to Myanmar. So you can see that the way I've used uh, the name referring to the country has also changed. So I did used to be in the crowd where I believe using the word Burma is the politically correct thing to do. I no longer believe that. So I'm, again, very happy to use Myanmar, which is now the official name of the country and has been for the last few decades. Uh, and just to add a little bit more on that point, this is also the official name that other people have used, including President Obama, when he was still president a few years ago, as well as I'm aware, uh, the state councillor of Myanmar, Aung San Suu Kyi, has also used the word Myanmar.
1: We might be using them interchangeably today, but it's good to set those parameters early, I think. Now, you mentioned your book, which has just come out, I understand, and the title of your new book is The Paradox of Myanmar's Regime Change, published by Rutledge. And it's great timing, actually, because Myanmar is scheduled to hold general elections in November 2020. Do you talk about these upcoming elections in your book, or is it a broader picture that you're trying to paint?
0: So the book is based on my PhD research, which really examined the regime change that took place between 2011 and 2015, which uh, I've carried out a series of uh, trips to Myanmar for this work. But I, uh, in finishing the manuscript, I did add a couple of chapters on more recent developments since Aung San Suu Kyi and the National League for Democracy came into government. So there is a few uh, discussions, reference to what may happen in this year's election.
1: And one of the um, uncertainties at the moment is whether or not the election might be postponed due to COVID. Are there any updates on that?
0: So as far as I know, the uh, Union Election Commission, uh, which is responsible for the elections, have consistently said that they will not postpone or delay the elections. Although the surge in COVID cases, particularly in Yangon, has really increased the last several weeks. And the main reason I believe they are hesitant to postpone the elections is because of the potential constitutional implications, um, given that basically they need to form a new parliament and government by next March 2021, for well, the parliament in January 2021 and the, a new government by March.
1: And is that mandated in the constitution, that timing? And what are the consequences if they don't meet the timing?
0: I think in part, um, there, there is, uh, as you might be aware, that the Constitution have several clauses that gives protection to the military's interests in the country. So uh, one way that they could potentially postpone the election, I guess, is if the President goes for a national defense security Council and then basically hold an emergency provision. So, then handing power for the military to basically form, I guess, a temporary caretaker of government. So that obviously is the worst case scenario from the perspective of the current National League for Democracy government. Now, the constitution is doesn't, as far as I'm aware, doesn't actually specify the exact date of the election. But there are certain clauses which talks about when the parliament needs to be formed, when elections, uh, it's 90 days after elections takes place, that a new parliament needs to come into place, and then they need to form an electoral college within the parliament to vote for three vice presidents and then a president. So there are potential implications in the constitution and any postponement, which is plausible, does make it politically messy and potentially a variety of uh, difficulties for the government to handle.
1: So I guess we'll see whether the elections go ahead as planned and hopefully they can. But I mean, just taking a step back, a few decades ago, it would have been unthinkable to be um, looking forward to a general election in Myanmar. Can you fill us in on the modern political history of Myanmar, which you cover in your book, and on the democratic transition that this country has undergone in recent years?
0: So a very, very quick, brief history. Um, So Myanmar became an independent state after the British, basically, granted its independence in 1948. Now, between 1948 and 1958, there's a general simplistic view that it was a functional, multi-party, parliamentary democracy. But the reality was that the government was very weak, was facing serious insurgencies and civil wars. So the military was always essentially the most powerful institution and political actor in the country. Now, uh, in 1962, the military carried out a coup and has effectively... Uh, directly ruled Myanmar as a hunter since 1962, and at least until 1988, when there has been a new coup replacing the old military government, which then lasted until 2010, uh, when elections were held for the first time. So really, there hasn't been any civilian government in Myanmar between 1962 and 2010. And in 2011, and this is where most of the focus of my book looks into, this then-Military junta, the State Peace and Development Council, allowed elections for 2010 based on the constitution that they've drafted and took a long process to draft, uh, allowing elections. But the first government that came into place in 2011, which did come through electoral process that most people deemed uh, unfair, this included, for example, that the National League for Democracy, which is then the main opposition party, normally led by Aung San Suu Kyi, actually boycott that election. Um, So that first civilian government since the end of formal military rule between 2011 and 2015 is usually considered the beginning of the so-called democracy in Myanmar. And as I like to emphasize, and I think people need to realize, this is also something that I challenge in my book. I don't call Myanmar a democracy. I do not think it's actually undergone through any genuine democratic transition and even with the forming of the nominally civilian government by Ansan Suchi in after 2015 elections it is still not a genuine democracy and i'm happy to go into more details
1: so we've got that overt military domination of politics from 1962 to 2010 2011 or a period of almost 50 years And then we have this move towards political liberalisation, whether uh, it was a genuine move or something performative with the military still operating in the background is something that we might like to explore. But what was it like at that moment in time for the international community and for the Burmese themselves in terms of their hopes for the country?
0: Right. So in 2015, this was really a critical year because the first genuine transfer of partial power took place. So in 2015, elections, the National League for Democracy, which was then the main opposition party, won in a landslide, allowing them paving the way in 2016 for the NLD to form a government and also quickly passed a bill creating the office of the state councillor. Does um, effectively allow Aung San Suu Kyi to become basically a de facto prime minister.
1: So, why did they have to create that position of state councillor? Just to pause you there, because that that's a new position, basically created just for Aung San Suu Kyi.
0: Right, that's right. Really, to understand what has been happening in Myanmar since the dissolution of the military junta, we need to understand the importance of the constitution. I've briefly mentioned after the uh, military came back into a second reincarnation of their power in 1988, 1990. They really began this long process of drafting the Constitution. This Constitution, then there was a referendum for this Constitution in 2008, which was passed and then implemented, promulgated in 2010, 2011. And in the Constitution, there are several clauses, which include a clause that for a person to be eligible to be president, they can't have relatives that hold foreign national, foreign passports, or citizenship. Now, Ansan Succi, of course, both her sons, uh, I believe, hold British citizenship. So, based on that clause, there is no way that she can be the president of the country. So, in order for the National League for Democracy to give Aung San Suu Succi a formal political government role, they used their majority in the new parliament in 2016 to push for this bill of state councillor. And this is interesting because it does circumvent some of the constitutional restrictions and gave Aung San Suu Kyi both access to legislative and executive powers. So basically uh, the de facto prime minister of Myanmar since 2016.
1: So when that election took place in 2015, which is, in fact, the last time elections were held in Myanmar, the National League for Democracy under Aung San Suu Kyi won a significant majority in a a landslide win. How did they use this mandate?
0: One thing I'd like to add, though, is that, and to kind of qualify what I said earlier about Myanmar not being a genuine democracy, this goes back to the constitution. So even though the NLD has a clear electoral mandate and form a government in 2016, The constitution basically meant that any government formed in Myanmar is an enforced coalition government. And I make this point in my book in particular. This is because, one, the military is guaranteed 25% of seats in all houses of legislative bodies in the country. So they appoint active military officers in both houses of the union government, as well as in the state parliaments. Further, in the executive branch, uh, three... Cabinet positions are reserved also for active military officers. So the uh, Minister of Defense, the Minister of Border Affairs and the Minister of Home Affairs have to be, by constitution decree, active military officers effectively appointed by the military commander, the the supreme commander of the military forces. Further, in the uh, Myanmar constitution, the supreme commander of all military forces, contrary to what we might expect in genuine democracies, is not elected civilian president. So the president of the country is not actually the, the Supreme Commander of the military force. This is an actual Supreme Commander that is an active military officer. So for example, today, uh, this would be Min Aung Nai and not the president, Win Min or the state Council Aung San Suu Kyi. All governments, irrespective of the electoral results, must be a coalition government founded with the civilian party that is elected alongside with the military.
1: So what you're saying is that even with a big mandate, it would have been difficult for the NLD to implement whatever major changes or reforms they wanted to. Is that right?
0: In many ways, yes. Uh, in terms of structural things, such as changing the constitution, in terms of effectively one of the most critical issue in Myanmar, that is relations with its ethnic minority groups and the ongoing civil war. Now, just to kind of go back a little bit to your question about this electoral mandate. So yes, one, the civilian government, the National League for Democracy-led government was essentially handicapped, right? So it doesn't have control uh, of the military, and the military is basically run as a parallel government. But at the same time, it does have huge mandates. It could have done a lot of things in terms of the social, economic, educational front. And in many ways, it's very hard for me to answer that question, especially as an outsider, But as an outsider observer, my view is that the NLD government has really wasted that mandate. There's some observable things, uh, structural things that they were quite successful. For example, they're able to convince uh, or they're able to reform the general administration's department. Now, this is the department that basically oversees and runs the entire bureaucracy of the Myanmar government. Now, this department used to be under... Uh, the control of the Ministry of Home Affairs, which again would be an active military officer holding that position. But they were able to reform and transfer that department into a new civilian-led ministry. So there are some things that were very successful, things like that. Economically, infrastructure developments, and critically, as I've briefly mentioned, relationship with ethnic minority groups and insurgent groups, I would say it's been a lot worse so there has been perhaps more genuine progressive developments in preceding governments between 2011 and 2015. Uh, and really everything has kind of gone reverse. Fighting has gone, has intensified under the National League for Democracy and Suu government. So there is actually more insurgent activities. In fact, I think it was just yesterday, October 14th, Three NLD candidates, so these are the candidates from the current ruling party, have been abducted um, while on campaigns. So we're really seeing very, very tense, fragile um, situation, especially in the peripheral borders in in Rakhine state, Kachin and Shan states. So in many ways, uh, things have gone backward in terms of peace and reconciliation in Myanmar.
1: So you've described this period as disciplined democracy. Um, Is that your term, Roger? Disciplined democracy? Is that something that you articulate in your book?
0: Right. So in fact, the 2008 constitution that essentially provides the rules of the game to how to govern Myanmar actually uses this term. So this is not exactly my term. I do use it a lot because this is the official term that is used by the Myanmar constitution. And I, and I think that is part of the problem in a lot of the mainstream narratives when they looked at even back in 2015, 2016, this kind of excitement from both local and international observers that, oh, well, it's now a democracy, you know, but it is actually written in the constitution that Myanmar is going to be a disciplined democracy. And they have all these measures in place by the military that will be able to preserve the military's interests in several areas especially on the issue of relationship with the ethnic states and ethnic minorities in the peripheries. And that is one of the reasons why the peace progress has really stalled because it lacks the capacity and also in many ways lacks the control into dealing with this situation. It doesn't really have genuine ability to control military operations and military interest in these areas.
1: Yeah, so if if it came to the crunch, you've got these positions of Supreme Commander, of President and of State Councillor, who would have primacy if there was a, an actual contest over control?
0: So that's interesting. Like I said, the way the Constitution is actually written, the civilian government technically cannot order the military to take on certain things. So the military operations and military strategies and even day-to-day operation of the military lacks civilian oversight, and it is the supreme commander that controls the military, not the civilian government.
1: Roger, we've touched on ethnic minorities, but I'd like to focus a little bit more closely on the Rohingya of Rakhine State and some of the cases that have been brought in the international courts, including the International Criminal Court and the International Court of Justice regarding the alleged atrocities against the Rohingya. Could you expand on that?
0: So just to like a little bit about this different narrative about Aung San Suu Kyi as we're well aware here internationally there's a lot of criticisms of Aung San Suu Kyi and the Myanmar government and its handling and the alleged crimes targeting the Rohingya community in the Rakhine state. Now international community especially the state of Gambia for example have brought the case on the Convention of Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide against Myanmar in the International Court of Justice. And interestingly, uh, Aung San Suu Kyi, in last year, December 2019, personally went to La Haye to basically defend Myanmar against these allegations. And I think this is where that kind of brought surprise and shock to some international observers. But this is actually seen as a very positive uh, development from the Myanmar perspective. Many people have said that this has actually basically reunited um, Aung San Suu Kyi's popularity in many circles, especially given that Myanmar is a very patriotic, Obama-centric, in in the mainstream, many ways, Obama-centric Buddhist society. And this was seen very positively as Aung San Suu Kyi standing up for Myanmar uh, against bullying by the West or international community. Apart from the International Court of Justice case, uh, the International Criminal Court uh, Is also looking at crimes against humanity, of allegations of Myanmar military carrying out this violence targeting the Rohingya community.
1: I think that's where a lot of the international community's disappointment in Aung San Suu Kyi's leadership has come from in her, her failure to properly support those ethnic minorities and to stop their persecution. But at the same time, she seems to be very popular domestically. So how do you explain, how do you reconcile those very different perspectives of Aung San Suu Kyi?
0: Now, from the outside perspective, it seems that everything's going wrong and in many ways that is my personal view that there has been a lot of backtracking and and arrest of progress in Myanmar. But within Myanmar, as you've correctly pointed out, Aung San Suu Kyi uh, is by far still the most popular political leader. Her charisma still rubs on and, and people Especially in urban and Bama-centric places, uh, Bama being the main ethnic group in Myanmar, I uh, still see Anton Suu Kyi and the party she leads as basically the main political party that could bring change and development in the country many different narratives here. And internationally, we see Aung San Suu Kyi and NLD as a disappointment, but within Bama circles, within Myanmar, in the main majority group, they still believe in Aung San Suu Kyi. And this is very much a success really of this built of kind of almost a cult of personality. And that hasn't really changed. However, having said that, um, as we've kind of also alluded, this is very different in the more conflict ridden areas in the ethnic borders, especially within ethnic minority groups. Now, in particular, in places like the Rakhine, I would say the NLD, the sushi, which already didn't endure the same type of popularity even in the last elections, and now basically sees no real credibility in those areas. And this is not just limited to the Rakhine state. I say this is probably also very true in many other places in ethnic minority areas um in the chain Kachin Shan states um, the NLD and Aung San Suu Kyi's own charisma might have really worn off we've also seen even within the NLD uh, last 5 years there has been disappointed MPs and old party loyalists now that have now left the party we've also heard about in more, should I say, critical circles, uh, especially the youth, I think there's something like 5 million new voters, for example, in this new election in 2020, they might not necessarily hold the same views about the NLD and Aung San Suu Kyi. Activists and even journalists are increasingly disappointed with Aung San Suu Kyi and the NLD. And I know COVID will very likely also put off people from voting anyways.
1: Yes, of course, Um, and it's quite a journey that she's undergone from, you know, her life in in the United Kingdom to being Burma's Lady with the Flower, and then those scenes we saw of her appearing before the War Crimes Tribunal in 2019. I'm not going to ask you to predict the election results. Um, but what I'm, I'm more interested in is your thoughts on whether this disciplined democracy will continue and, and what the prospects for democratic transition really are in Myanmar.
0: So the way that disciplined democracy is built is that it effectively allows the military to continue to hold genuine powers in any government. So irrespective of what happens in 2020 election and the election coming up in a few weeks, the military will still be front and center in the areas of its main interests, which again means relations with the ethnic minority groups. And constitutional amendments is notoriously difficult because it requires more than 75% approval from the parliament given that the military MPs hold 25% of the seats. Effectively, any constitutional amendments require or any serious uh, amendments to the constitution requires the support of the military. So if we want to see kind of a Western style liberalization of the political system in Myanmar, that's not really going to happen without the support of the military. And there's no evidence that the military will support this. But like I've said, in other ways, the civilian government does have genuine parliamentary legislative powers and executive powers, which they could use to promote development, looking to inequality issues, looking at land reform issues, et cetera. So it is not a powerless government, and I'm sorry if I gave a suggestion that it is. Any elected political party have genuine powers, it is just that it's limited to certain areas where the military might not have direct interest.
1: I think that's a really good point to end on, actually, because a lot of the narrative around Myanmar in the past few years has really focused on the failures of the NLD and that's really centred around Aung San Suu Kyi, this sort of personality cult that continues. But I think it's useful to think about those areas where the NLD can make a difference and if they do get up again in this next election, even with a reduced mandate, that there are still opportunities for them to introduce changes that benefit the community, um, social changes, educational changes perhaps and maybe that's where we should be focusing our attention. Thank you very much for joining us on the SIAC Stories podcast and really look forward to talking to you again. Thanks, Roger. Here I'd like to add that just days after this podcast was recorded, Myanmar's Union Election Commission announced voting would be cancelled in large parts of Rakhine state, as well as in parts of the Shan, Kachin, Kayin and Mon states, as well as the Bago region. This move effectively disenfranchises over 1 million voters and disproportionately affects the ethnic minority party's representation in government. You've been listening to SEAC Stories, brought to you by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. Make sure to keep up with all our SEAC Stories podcasts by following us on your favourite podcasting app. If you like the show, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, let your friends know about us on social media.